All right. Well, um, you know, we're in this series on heaven and hell, and we haven't talked yet about the second part of that title. And so my question is, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to think about this. What are, what are your thoughts regarding hell? When you think about the topic, the issue of hell, um, for you, do you wonder, is, is, is hell even real? Right? Um, uh, maybe for you, you think hell is this, uh, made, this tool that was developed to try to get people to have good behavior, um, you know, or else we'll threaten them uh, with this idea. Maybe for you, you think hell is a joke. Maybe, uh, maybe hell, you think, is this moldy myth that's left over from cultures and times past that just needs to go away, and we need to stop talking about it. But when you think about this, this topic, this issue of hell, what kinds of thoughts come into your mind on that? There was a survey done not too long ago uh, among uh, all of the age groups, and what they found was that it didn't matter if you were a boomer, if you were Generation X, if you were millennial, if you were whatever they're calling after millennials, uh, (laughs) uh, it was that belief in hell was split right down the middle. So a little less than half said, yep, hell is real, um, and I believe that. Another half, a little less than half said, hell is not real. And then there was a small percentage that said, we don't know. We have no idea what to think about in regards to, to hell. And so if you took this room, it's like, you know, this half of the room would say, yes, hell is real without a doubt. This half of the room would say, hell is not real. And then like you three right here in the center, you're like, I don't know, you know? And they're like, please don't make people look at me right now, okay? This is... So uncomfortable. Um, but what this tells me when I see this survey that you have such a high, high split between reality, not reality, unsure, is that it tells me there are a lot of questions about this topic of hell, uncertainty. What does it mean? What does it look like? What is all, what's all behind that? Uh, and whether you have questions or not, it becomes very clear very quickly that people have objections to the idea of hell. And so people will say things like, well, hell is not real, right? And so I don't even need to think about that. Uh, Or they'll say hell is not fair, because how in the world can somebody have eternal consequences for temporary actions? That seems really out of whack, right? Um, Others may uh, say things like, well, hell isn't forever, you know, at some point it will end, and and it's not constant and ongoing. Uh, Others may say, well, you know, the reason I have an issue with hell is it's not in alignment with God's love. And so how in the world could a loving God, um, you know, have a place like hell for people? And so there's all these questions, there's all these objections to hell. And today what I want to do is I want to show you from the Bible two very important truths uh, about hell. And I also want to show you how your response to the topic of hell actually can lead you to love God more. And so if you brought a Bible with you, uh, you can turn to Mark chapter 9 or click over there on your device. Uh, We're in this series called Heaven and Hell. My name is Fritz, by the way, and uh, glad you're here. And I do want to take a moment just to welcome uh, people who are joining us today. If you're at Lighthouse Online, maybe you're watching from Bluffton or Fostoria, or maybe one of our friends from Living Hope, or just anywhere else, we're glad you're with us today. And then if you're here in the house, thank you so much for coming and being uh, with me and our friends and family today. Um, 
But we're starting in Mark chapter 9. That's where we're starting. But be prepared to jump around to a lot of different places because we're doing what's called systematic theology. And systematic theology is different in the sense we typically will take one verse and we'll drill down and we'll mine and we'll look at all the things that that one verse says or that passage says. Systematic theology actually looks across all of the Bible to say, what do all of these different passages have to say about a topic? And so we're going to be bouncing around a little bit, but we'll start in Mark chapter 9, but just be ready to go. And, and I hope that you found this series uh, helpful so far if you've been journeying with us. This is actually week four uh, in it. So uh, I know it's been impactful for my family. I'm hoping that it has been for you as well. Before we dive into this topic, I do want to take a moment and pray uh, just quickly. Lord, we, um, we really really want to hear from you today. I, I don't really want to hear from me. Um, I have a sense that most everybody here, well, probably everybody, uh, doesn't want to hear from me. Um, they want to hear from you. And, and yours is a voice that we, we need to hear. And so I would ask that Scripture would simply come alive with clarity for us today. Um, I would pray that we would sense your Holy Spirit leading us into truth that we might not have been able to wrestle well with before. And uh, may you give us um, clarity, sober-mindedness as we walk through this topic today. We are so grateful for what Jesus has done and the fact that your Holy Spirit leads us to know you uh, more deeply and and to see you more clearly. Uh, We would ask for that very much today. Uh, we ask these things through the name of Christ. Everybody said? Amen. Okay, thank you. Um, so here's the first truth that I want to share with you right out of the gate, and it's this. Hell is real. Hell is real. Um, hell is not a state of mind. Hell is not a fantasy. Hell is not a made-up myth. Hell is real. And you might say, well, how can you know that? You know, have you ever been there? How can you know that hell is real? And I'll tell you, the answer is no, I've not been there. Um, but what I can tell you is that the reason I know that hell is real is that Jesus talked about hell with clarity. In fact, if you look at Mark chapter 9, if you were there, uh, starting in verse 43, Jesus, he's describing kind of what happens, uh, the relationship with sin. And you look at verse 43, he says this. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so what Jesus is doing is he is using hyperbole to describe how just devastating sin is, but then he's also making a very real claim about what happens if we would rather have sin than have a relationship with God. And when Jesus is describing hell, he is not describing an imaginary place. In fact, if you look at uh, all of Jesus' teachings throughout the gospel, you will find that 13% of Jesus' teachings are specifically about hell and eternal judgment. Half of the parables that he told have to do with the eternal judgment of people, okay? So Jesus talked about this topic 
with clarity, and he described hell as a real place. And I know, just simply from the statistics, I know that in a room this size with this many people, that there are some that would say, listen, I I reject the reality of hell. I don't think it's a real place. It is not real and legitimate. And what I would say, what I'm going to say very next next is very, very important. And so hear what I'm about to say, because it's, it's critical to understanding what it is to be a follower of Christ. Rejecting the reality of hell is rejecting the very teachings of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. That's very important. Rejecting the reality of hell is rejecting the very teachings of Jesus Christ. And if there is one thing that is core to being a follower of Jesus Christ, it's believing that what Jesus said is true. It's at the center. And, and what happens is if I, take, if I reject what Jesus says about one area that I struggle with, do you see that it begins to, I just can choose what I'm going to believe, what I'm going to trust, what I'm going to follow along, right? And, and let me say this, it is okay to struggle with truth that's found in the scriptures, right? To read something and go, oh, that's hard to read, and that's hard to understand. It is okay to wrestle with things that you're reading in the Bible and, and to kind of go, man, I, I'm, I'm trying to get my mind around this thing. It's even okay to not like it and go, man, I'm not a fan of this, but it's, but it's true. But to resist the truth of Christ is actually to resist Christ himself because you can't separate the two. To resist the truth of Christ is to resist Christ himself. And I just simply want you to be cautious in that. No matter the topic. doesn't matter if it's hell. doesn't matter if it's some social issue that you wish the Bible said something different about. But any topic that is Christ followers, the core thing is that we believe that what Jesus said is true. And so let's take a moment and scan the Bible just very quickly to see how the Bible describes hell. If you, if you look back at Mark 9 again, you'll see that Jesus describes hell as eternal. He says, this is where the worm does not die and their fire does not go out. It never ends. It never stops. Uh, if uh, Write this passage down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. It uh, describes hell as eternal destruction. Um, Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, uh, talks about the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And so the scriptures describe hell as eternal and ongoing. The Bible also describes hell as a place of torment, right? Again, if you look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, it describes God's wrath and torment with fire and burning sulfur. Uh, Other passages talk about a fire that never goes out, uh, a place of weeping, and a place where there is gnashing of teeth, right? Which is uh, describing anguish and describing anger, right, at the same time. And so that's how the scriptures describe hell. And uh, what's interesting is you might not know this, but every time Jesus referred to hell, he actually used the word Gehenna. And for you and I, that might not mean a whole lot uh, for Jesus to use Gehenna when he's referring to hell. Uh, Let me tell you what Gehenna is. So Gehenna was Jerusalem's Mount Trashmore, 
Okay, so this was their dump that was just outside of the city. And this is the place where when you were ready to throw stuff away, right? Uh, This is a place where you threw it out. You had food that was rotting there, uh, just things you didn't want anymore, uh, your garbage. This is where the corpses of criminals were thrown. This is where the corpses of dead animals were thrown. And uh, there were kind of fires smoldering all the time. So there's always kind of just smoke rising up out of Gehenna. And so if you lived in Jerusalem, you could see Gehenna at times. And depending on which way the wind was blowing, you could smell Gehenna, right, coming through Jerusalem. And so everybody knew what Jesus was talking about when he was referring to Gehenna. Now, including the the trash site for Jerusalem, there's another layer behind Gehenna. Gehenna used to be known as the Valley of Hinnom. And if you've read some, spent some time in the Old Testament, you may have come across the Valley of Hinnom before. And why this is important is this, the Valley of Hinnom is the place where disobedient Jews, right? They resisted God's leadership, and instead they worshipped another by the name of Molech. And the way that you worshipped Molech is you went to the Valley of Hinnom, and you brought with you your baby, and you would dedicate your baby to Moloch. And the way that you would finalize that dedication is you would take your baby and you would throw it into the fire and let it burn alive. This is the Valley of Hinnom, which later became known as Gehenna. Right? And so what Jesus is doing is Jesus is communicating that hell is a place of torment. It's a place without God. It's a place of disobedience. And it's a place of shame. And so what Jesus is saying, he says, listen, Gehenna is the closest thing that I can use to describe, to help you understand what hell is like. But you have to know that when Jesus described hell, he described it as a real place, that it is real. The second truth about hell is a little bit harder for most people to accept. And this is the second truth, is that hell is right. Hell is right. And what I mean by that is hell is fair. Hell is just. And I know some of you, you're going, wow, that sounds really heartless hearing that, right, in this room. I mean, just think about how heartless it is being the guy saying that to a room of people, right? But I think that we believe hell is unfair because we do not understand the weight of our sin. We don't really understand the true weight of our sin. See, in order to to understand the fairness of hell, you actually have to understand all of the ways that God has revealed himself in the Bible. Because if you ask the average person, you say, hey, what is God like? A lot of people will immediately go, well, God is, he's loving God is generous, and God is kind, and God is graceful, and God is forgiving, and he's long-suffering, right? And, and all of that stuff is true, by the way. I'm not discrediting that at all. The Bible clearly points to God as all of those things. Do you know how else the Bible describes God and God describes himself? Holy, righteous, just, perfect. In fact, Psalm 95, verse 12, 
uh, excuse me, Psalm 92, got those reversed, Psalm 92 verse 15 actually describes God this way. It says that there is no wickedness in him. There's no sin in God at all. There's no evil. There's no evil intentions. None of that. And that is so far removed from us. We don't understand what it's like to have no hint of sin. And so we struggle to understand the weight and the offensiveness of our sin. And, and to be able to even get a, an inkling, to be able to kind of understand to a degree how weighty and how offensive our sin is, you actually have to look at the death of Christ to begin to understand it. Here's what I mean by this. So I want you to imagine for a moment you have a husband and wife, and they're sitting down for a dinner, and, and the husband has gone to great lengths to get this whole thing prepared, and, and, and he's set the table, but he's done it in a little bit of a rush. And so in setting the table, one of the things he forgot to do was he forgot to put a fork at his wife's place setting. And so they sit down for the meal, and they're getting ready to, to eat, and all of a sudden the wife notices, I don't have a fork. And so in a normal circumstance, what would you expect the wife to do? The wife's going to say, well, dear, you, you forgot to give me a fork. And what will he do? Well, he'll probably go, oh, I'm so sorry. And he'll jump up, and he'll get a fork, and he'll give it to her, and they'll enjoy their meal. Or, and that's even if she says anything, right? She might just get up, get her own fork, and sit down, and, and nobody cares, right? It's not a big deal. You move on, and you have dinner, and this wonderful evening, okay? Now, I want you to imagine that same husband, the same wife, same dinner, but this time, all the forks are there, okay? No place settings were overlooked. Everything is fine. Nothing's wrong at all, and they're just getting ready to eat. And this time, the wife says, dear, I have something to tell you. And he says, what's that? And she says, with trembling in her voice, I have to confess to you that I have been sleeping with your brother. And I've been doing it for years. And it's been going on for a long time, and you've not known anything about it. And actually, it's been going on for so long, I'm not even entirely sure if our children belong to you or not. Right? Now, can you imagine what this husband is feeling? Anger? Hurt? Devastation? Like, what? I don't, I don't even know what to do with this right now. Right? Take them, take, like, let's think about this, and let's imagine that this husband and wife says, we're going we're gonna to work this, we're going to reconcile this marriage, we're going to make this thing work. What do you think it would take to go from where they were at that dinner, getting back to a reconciled marriage, right? It's probably going to take things like, like repentance and confession, uh, probably going to have to cut off a relationship with the brother, uh, at all, uh, maybe maybe from there on out, you've got to rebuild trust, right? You probably you're probably going to years of counseling. It, you're maybe even going. I don't know. Should we be doing paternity tests, right? You're like thinking about all of these things and how long and 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 how huge it would be to get back to reconciliation in this marriage. You're going to have to have forgiveness, all of that, right? This is the point that I'm trying to make, and, and hopefully this is very clear. The weight of the solution reveals the weight of the problem. Do you understand? In the first scenario, all it took was a fork, and everything's right again. 
How offensive is it to not have a fork at dinner? Very, very, very small. But to overcome that second situation, the weight of the solution reveals the weight of the problem. Okay? Now, what you have to understand is this. For our sin to be forgiven and to be brought into a right relationship with God, the solution required the death of the Son of God. Nothing else could do it. The blood of bulls and lambs and goats could not cover the weight of our sin. Only the death and the resurrection of the Son of God could solve our sin. There is no greater, there is no weightier solution than that one. What does that say about the weight of our sin? Do you see? Do you see that the weight of the solution reveals the weight of the problem? And the more that you begin to look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it took, you begin to understand how deeply devastating and how deeply painful our sin really is. And in the process of that, you begin to realize that hell is right. Hell is fair. Hell is just, right? Now, I know for many of you, you're going, well, this is not the feel-good sermon of the year, okay? Uh, You're apologizing to your friend that you've invited them today, right? I promise you, it is not normally like this. And you might be wondering, going, why in the world do we need to know that hell is real and that hell is right? Why would we need to know that? I'm going to tell you why. There's two big reasons. The first one is this. In Revelation chapter 20, the Bible makes very, very clear that every single person one day is going to stand in front of the great white throne of judgment. And on that throne will be the judge, who is God himself. And God will determine who, the eternal future of every single person, whether they will be welcomed into heaven or well, whether they will be rejected into hell. And the scriptures describe that those who are judged to hell are peoples whose names were not found in Jesus' book of life. And in fact, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 says this, that the people who have been uh, moved to eternal separation are people who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is this, is that that hell is reserved for unrepentant people who refuse to be transformed by Jesus Christ through faith. Right? And so these are people who did not want God's leadership in their lives in this life. These are people who stiff-armed God and lived by their own truth, or whatever truth it is that they wanted to accept, even when the Bible was clear. And what the scriptures say is that without Christ, here's why this is important, without Christ, that every single one of us are already condemned and we are separated from God. That's actually where we begin, right? That's what, that's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Now, John chapter 3 is home to probably one of the most famous Bible verses in America. We can actually probably figure it out and say it together, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not have perish, but have life everlasting. Do you know what Jesus says right after that, two verses later in verse 18? He says this, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name 
of the only Son of God. And then in verse 36, he continues on, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so those verses say that the condemnation is already on us. God's wrath already is on us. And if we refuse Jesus, it stays. And it remains. And if I'm separated from God now, and if I refuse Christ, I will be separated from him forever. This is what Jesus is saying. You know, over the series, we've described heaven as the fullness of God's presence. And, and I believe that's true. I think we can describe hell as the exact opposite, that hell is the complete absence of God's presence. Right? Heaven is the fullness. Hell is the absence. I appreciate what theologian Millard Erickson says when he writes this. He says, hell is not so much a place of physical suffering as it is the awful loneliness of total and final separation from the Lord. The awful loneliness of total and final separation from the Lord. Because Scripture makes clear that there is no opportunity to change your mind after you've passed from this world. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable. And in that parable, he's making a clear point. And inside that parable, he says this, right? He makes the point that there is a great chasm between heaven and hell. And he says, nobody can cross over from hell to heaven, and nobody can cross over from heaven to hell. And so you need to hear this, is that the decisions that we make now govern where we will be in the future. The decisions we make now govern our eternal futures. And so if I refuse Jesus now, and in this life, Scripture makes very, very clear that Jesus will refuse me from being in his presence in heaven. And so we need to know that hell is real and right because we will stand before the judge one day. And the other reason that we need to know about hell is that it actually... And this is going to sound wild to some of you, but actually it helps us to see how huge and immense and massive and deeply good God's love and grace really are. Right? Because when you begin to realize that every single one of us, like I deserve to be separated from God forever because of my sin, right? That's what I deserve. And then you begin to see the great lengths that God has gone to rescue you from that. To not actually, he doesn't want you to be separated from him. He wants you to be with him forever. He wants you to be so close to him, in fact, that when you come to faith, he puts his Holy Spirit right within you. You can't even get any closer than that. It's like, where does one start and the other one end? I have no clue. Like, where's the Holy Spirit? Oh, he's like right here, and he's here, and he's there, right? It's like, he's, just, he's in me, and it's amazing, and it's awesome. That's how God wants us to be, and he's done absolutely everything necessary so that you and I can be with him forever. And you begin to see how far God went so that we wouldn't be separated. This is what Paul was trying to help us understand, what he's trying to help the Ephesians understand when he wrote the letter to them. In chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he says, I pray for you to have strength. Right? This is his prayer. Actually, let's read this passage out loud together, with, uh, starting with may have strength. Are you ready? Go. <clears throat> yeah, I'm all choked up. Man, I'm all like, yeah. <laughs> 
I think there's a bug that just flew into my mouth or something. Let's try this again. I think I'm ready. Okay, and go. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is saying, when you begin to see how weighty our sin is, you begin to see how great God's love is. And you see how wide and how deep and how high and the lengths that he is willing to go so that you can be with him. This is why we need to know that hell is real and that hell is right, because God has rescued us from that. So the question is, well, then, now that I know that, what do I do? Well, I want to talk to two groups of people just very quickly. First, I want to talk to those of you who are already Christians. You're already followers of Christ. Um, when I was meditating on this truth about the reality of hell and the fairness of hell, there were two things that came to my mind. The first one is this. It was an overwhelming urge to just worship the Lord and to thank him and, and, to, and to celebrate him. And to tell him how great he is. And that, and that I see him again freshly for, for the generous, kind, graceful, just God that he truly is. And I just wanted to thank him for forgiving me and making the way for me to be rescued and to be in his presence with him forever. I just, I just wanted to worship him as I thought about this. The second thing that I felt drawn to was simply a desire to tell others about how good God is. I wanted other people to know how they could be rescued through faith in Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is actually the reality of hell, which led me to the reality of God's love and his goodness, is motivating me to want to let you know and to let my neighbors know and to let other people I'm coming in contact with know that, that they, you don't have to be afraid of death and you don't have to be afraid of hell because God has a plan and he has a rescue plan to, to save us. From that. And actually, I think when it comes to talking to other people, we don't have to use hell to manipulate them into faith. We don't have to use the reality of hell to scare people into saying yes to Jesus Christ. Right? We can understand that reality. And in fact, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 would say it this way: it would say that God's kindness, not his fear, not, not some manipulate, not some form of manipulation is what leads you to repentance. It's God's kindness. That leads to repentance. It's the fact that he has rescued us from that very thing, right? And so I think what we can do is we can be motivated by the love of Christ, understanding that the reality of hell is real, and we can tell others about what Christ has done. And, and maybe along the way, right, as I'm building relationships, I'm talking where they're asking questions like, yeah, I think I can share the reality of hell, but I don't think that's where you start. I don't think we scare people into the kingdom in that way. Because from there on out, I'm motivated by fear. And John, 1 John has very clear language about that, right? And so instead, what if, what, if, what if you asked your coworker, hey, what do you think happens when you die? And just listen. And then as they share, maybe you get an opportunity to share about the hope of heaven and what God has waiting for us. Maybe it's asking a neighbor, hey, do you ever think about spiritual things? and letting them lead the conversation and, and sharing what Christ has done and, and how he's transforming your life, right? And when you think about how good God has been to us, it, it overwhelms us with joy, doesn't it? It's like, man, God's so awesome and amazing. How cool to be able to pass that joy 
onto someone else and just give it away, right? You're just like making it rain with joy everywhere you go, right? It doesn't matter. That's, that's how I think we respond if we're Christ followers when we think about the reality of hell and the fairness of hell. But I'd like to speak to those of you who haven't said yes to Jesus yet. You haven't put your faith in it. I, I want to talk to those of you who are trying really, really hard to please God. I want to talk to those of you who you're, you're hoping that, man, one day I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and that'll be enough to let me get into heaven. I want to talk to those of you who you're thinking on the day that I'm standing before St. Peter at the pearly gates and he asked me, why, why should I let you into heaven that I'll have some really great response to give to him? And he'll say, we've not heard that one before. Yeah, come on in. You can be in heaven, right? I want to talk to those of you who are living with the fear of death every single day and it grips you and it terrorizes you and you have no idea what to do with that what I think the reality and the fairness of hell is inviting you to do is this to choose to put your trust in the person of Jesus Christ that's what I think this is inviting you to do to believe to believe that Jesus is God's son to believe that, that the work of Jesus on the cross and out of the grave is enough to cover your sins. To believe that God, you can already stand forgiven by God because of what Jesus Christ has done. To believe that God can adopt you, yes, even you as his son, to adopt you as his daughter. To believe that God has a place waiting for you. He's preparing a place for you in heaven, and he cannot wait to look you in the eye and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. I've been waiting for the day that you come home, right? And to believe that all of that is true and that God can rescue you from eternal separation. To believe. And, and maybe, right, maybe you're here going, I, that makes sense to me. How do I believe? I don't know how to do that. What do, I, do I just like try really hard? Do I, do I click my heels three times and say, I believe? I, what, what, what do I do? How do I believe? I'm going to tell you how to believe. I'm going to let you in. Are you ready? This is how you believe. This is how you put your trust in Christ. You decide. You decide. You just choose to. You choose to trust Christ, right? You decide. You make a decision right now to believe that the Bible is true, that everything it says is true, that everything it says about Jesus is true, that everything it says Jesus talked about is true, even the stuff you struggle with and is really hard to accept. You decide to let Jesus lead your life instead of you leading your life. You decide that I'm going to journey with this spiritual family known as the church to help me know who God is. You decide to believe today and then tomorrow, if tomorrow does come, you believe all over again. You choose to believe again and you put your trust in Christ and you just keep doing that again and again and again until one day faith becomes sight. You're standing in the presence of God, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is it. That's faith. That's faith. 
And if you're ready to choose faith, I want to help you do that. Right? This is, this is what I did 25 years ago. I made a decision to follow Jesus. And, and to be honest with you, I didn't understand everything that was behind it. I didn't understand the realness of hell. I didn't understand the fairness of hell. I didn't understand a great white throne of judgment was waiting for me. What I did understand was that I needed Christ. I knew that much. And that's where you start. And maybe you today, you understand that much. And that's enough. Because Jesus said, faith is small as a mustard seed. It starts there, but it never stays there. It always expands and it grows and it gets bigger than you could ever imagine. And maybe you know that today and you're ready to take that step. So what I've done is just, just to kind of help you express this faith that's welling up inside of you, um, I've put together a prayer that might be helpful to, to express what's going on in your heart and your mind. And it just simply says this, Lord, I want to experience your grace today. I believe Jesus is your son. I realize I need a savior and I'm asking you to be mine. Help me to reject living my life without you and instead follow you as my leader from now on. Amen. Now I want to tell you this. You could recite this prayer today and you could recite this prayer every day from here on out to the end of your life. This prayer is not what saves you. This isn't, this isn't what redeems you and brings you forgiveness. It's faith. It's faith in Christ. It's faith in his work, right? Like, it's recognizing that Christ has done all of the work, right? His whole life of righteousness, his death on the cross, his resurrection out of the grave, all of that work is enough for you to be forgiven and reconciled into a relationship with the Father. There's no more work for you to do. There's no good deeds. There's no, right? None of that. It's been done. In fact, there were some people who said, we want to do the works of God to Jesus, right? This happens in Gospel of John. And they say, we want to do the works of God. What do we need to do to do the works of God? And do you know how Jesus responded to them? He said, the work of God is for you to believe. To believe in the one whom he has sent. That's your work. Your work is to believe. And so I'm inviting you to believe and to decide. And prayer is simply one way to express that faith that's welling within you. And I want to help you make that decision today. So I want to invite everybody to bow their heads and to close your eyes and to simply ask this question. We ask it every Sunday, Jesus, what are you saying to me right now? And I just want you to listen to him for a moment. What is he saying to you? Maybe you're seeing how amazing God's love is for the first time. Maybe you're, you're recognizing the weightiness of your sin. How, how immense it is and that it took the perfect son of God to die in your place to solve it. Maybe the Holy Spirit is inviting you to choose faith today for the first time. And if God's inviting you to do that, here's what I want you to do. Just in your seats. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. I simply, I want to pray this prayer with you one more time. And if you want to pray it with me, you can look up at this screen and you can pray it out loud. You can pray it silently. You can, it, does, it doesn't matter to me. But I just want to pray that prayer with you one more time. And it's this. Lord, I want to experience your grace today. I believe Jesus is your son. And I realize I need a savior. And I'm asking you to be mine. Help me to reject living life without you. And instead, follow you as my leader from now on. you're here this morning, you're saying, I'm choosing faith. I'm choosing Jesus. I'm going to ask you to take one more step. 
I'm not asking you to come to the front of the room. I'm not asking you to stand up. But I'm going to ask you, right? Heads are bound. And this is a moment between you and my, you and me and the Lord. Because I just, I want to be able to pray for you. If you're here this morning and you're going, I'm, I'm making the decision to follow Jesus. I'm trusting him today. I'm going to count to three. And I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand up real quick so I can see you. And I can know to be praying for you by faith, whether I know your name or not, to be able to pray for you by faith over the coming days and weeks. So on the count of three, if you've made a decision to follow Christ, I'm just going to ask you to lift your hand up. One, two, three. If you made a decision, put your hand up. I see that. I see that. Yes, I see these here. Yes, anyone else? Yeah, I see you in the middle there. Great, great. Anyone else? Anyone else? Yes, I see you, ma'am, in the back. Yep, great. Anyone else? Anyone else? Yes, I see that hand there in the middle. Yep, right here on my left, I see you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Oh, wow. Oh, wow, yes, over here on the right, I see that. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Lord, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that there are people who are saying yes to you by faith. Not because of work, not because of manipulation, but because of truth. Because you are leading us by your spirit for people that want to know you, that want to walk with you, that want to trust you. And I pray that you would use this church family to help these new believers to know you by faith and to know that all the work has already been done. And our job is to enjoy you. Our job is to let you lead our lives the best way that you see fit. And I pray for these friends as they're journeying forward uh, that they would learn how to trust you in new, fresh ways. I thank you for this church family who loves you and truth so deeply and wants other people to know who you are. We ask all these things in the wonderful and matchless name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Can we celebrate somewhere like six, eight, nine? I don't know what the number was. Like, I'm lost count of hands. <laughs> People saying yes to Jesus. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hey, one of the things we love doing at Lighthouse is praying for one another. We do this every single Sunday. And so the band's going to come up. They're going to lead us in one final song. And during this song, we're going to have prayer leaders who are going to be available in all four corners of the room. So one up here by the cross, one on my left, your right, uh, back by the sound booth. And we'll have one guarding the double doors so you can't leave until we pray for you. Um, but we, we simply want to pray for you. And so during this last song, we want to be that available. And just ask, unless you have an emergency, just kind of hang with us in this moment. To, we can pray with you. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand here in the house. And if you'd like to receive prayer during this last song, just go to one of the corners and we'll be ready to pray with you. But let me pray for you first. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw every single person who needs Jesus, who needs prayer. We ask these things in your name. Amen. If you want to receive prayer, come now. Don't wait. We are ready. sing this song together. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my the good 